Hello, and welcome to the January 2023 Editor's Commentary and Restory Care Podcast. This is Rich Branson. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Restory Care. Today not only starts the 1st of 2023, but begins the time where the journal will be online only uh, with a host of multimedia options to increase the value of the journal to members and our readers. This month's Editor's Choice is a paper by Deolio and colleagues evaluating environmental contamination by SARS-CoV-2 from COVID-19 subjects receiving non-invasive ventilation. The presence of SARS-CoV-2 was measured using surface sampling in the ICU. Sampling was performed at 6, 12, and 24 hours. In 256 samples, only 21, or 8%, tested positive. The authors suggest that these findings demonstrate that non-invasive ventilation does not increase the risk of infection to healthcare workers. Of course, they didn't test infection in healthcare workers. They just tested how much of the SARS-CoV was left on surfaces. In a similar paper, Ramsey and others evaluated SARS-CoV-2 aerosols during non-invasive respiratory support of COVID-19 patients. They used aerosol sampling techniques to collect air samples near 37 subjects with COVID-19. In a parallel study, they evaluated aerosol collected from normal volunteers using non-invasive respiratory support. The presence of SARS-CoV-2 was found in less than 10% of samples and only those in close proximity to the subject. They concluded that use of non-invasive ventilation or high-flow nasal cannula in subjects with COVID-19 did not increase the risk of aerosol dispersal in the ICU. One of the section editors, Jay Lee, considers both papers in an accompanying editorial. She reviews the methods of both papers and discusses the differences between aerosol-generating procedures and aerosol dispersion. She suggests that non-invasive respiratory support has been shown to be effective in select cases of COVID-19 and does not appear to increase the risk to caregivers. Of course, all this is dependent upon the fact that the caregivers, particularly the respiratory therapists providing these therapies, wear proper personal protective equipment. Del Orm and co-workers performed a bench study of response of positive airway pressure devices using treatment of sleep-disordered breathing to simulated breathing patterns, including central hypopnea, central apnea, obstructive hypopnea, and obstructive apnea. They intended to test the response of the automatic adjustment algorithms of each device under controlled conditions. These findings included a wide range of responses with pressure settings resulting in delivered tidal volumes inconsistent with desired target volumes. Scoring of events by devices was also inconsistent. The author suggests that caregivers should understand the differences in devices and algorithms need to be modified by manufacturers to meet patient needs and demands. In a similar study, Fasquell studied the impact of unintentional air leaks on positive airway pressure devices during a bench study of simulated sleep apnea events. Automatic positive airway pressure devices are commonly used to treat sleep, sleep disordered breathing at home, automatically adjusting pressure using a variety of inputs. In fact, some of the sophistication in closed loop control based on volume, airway pressure, leaks, the snoring is far more sophisticated than these home care devices than they are in some of the ICU devices. They evaluated three automatic positive airway pressure devices and found a wide range of inappropriate responses to air leaks. They concluded that automatic adjustments differ between devices and might make adjustments that lead to less effective treatment. Johnson and Johnson discussed both papers, pointing out the same response by a device to different events undoubtedly leads to both appropriate and inappropriate changes in delivered pressures. 
They suggest that clinicians should understand the nuances of the devices they use and choose the best device for the pathophysiology of the patient. Takato et al. evaluated the variability of oxygen consumption, carbon dioxide production, and minute ventilation at various work rates under steady state conditions and multiple subjects over a one-year period to assess and perform biologic control testing. Four healthy subjects were tested and performed 16 to 39 biocontrol studies. The mean coefficient of variation for VO2, VCO2, and minute ventilation was around 6%. They propose a method to determine whether results exceed the expected variability. Leatherman and colleagues evaluated ventilatory parameters after one week of mechanical ventilation in 127 subjects with COVID-19 ARDS in order to define characteristics associated with survival. Mortality rate was 33% and was associated with higher ventilatory ratio and lower compliance, but with no relationship to PO2-FIO2 ratio. A composite score of ventilatory ratio compliance and PO2-FIO2 differed between survivors and non-survivors, but there was a large over, overlap in those values. Jagan et al. performed a retrospective analysis of the time on non-invasive respiratory support before intubation, compliance, and driving pressures in patients with ARDS. Of 589 subjects, 33% had COVID-19 and the remainder did not. In contrast to ARDS, COVID-ARDS was associated with no improvement in static compliance or driving pressures over time. Days of pre-intubation non-invasive respiratory support were associated with worse overall compliance and driving pressures. This has been one of the main issues that's come up during COVID-19. First, we didn't use non-invasive respiratory support for fear of contaminating the environment. Then we learned that that really wasn't an issue, but the use has been successful in many patients. Um, some patients responding better to NIV than high flow nasal cannula and some to hypo-nasal cannula more than non-invasive ventilation. But the key aspect is for us to recognize when the patient requires intubation and not delay. Delay in the definitive treatment often results in worse outcomes. Gigliotti and others evaluated functional and clinical characteristics of COVID-19 patients referred to an inpatient pulmonary rehabilitation program across a period of 17 months. In 203 subjects, 168 required invasive ventilation for an average of 26 days and nearly half experienced delirium. At presentation for pulmonary rehab, 85% were still receiving oxygen therapy and a third could not perform a six-minute walk test. Just less than half the patients experienced aphasia. They concluded that following severe COVID-19, subjects entered in patient pulmonary rehab with a host of disabilities requiring multidisciplinary care. Um, I don't know that this is particularly different um, than any other prolonged critical care illness, but clearly patients who had COVID-19 ARDS were critically ill for a long period of time and suffered a multitude of problems uh, post-intensive care, including delirium, problems with swallowing, problems protecting their airway, and generalized muscle weakness. Lowerden and co-workers retrospectively reviewed 1,306 subjects receiving non-invasive respiratory support for COVID-19 in an intermediate respiratory care unit. Non-invasive respiratory support failed in 26% of subjects and 14% of subjects died. A COX model showed a higher clinical failure with onset of symptoms. Hospitalization was less than 10 days and PO2 to ratio less than 100, so severe hypoxemia. They concluded that in this group, men, people of advanced age, and blood chemistry results were associated with worse prognosis. 
these factors along with lower oxygenation were associated with mortality. Hercevich et al. evaluated risk factors for ARDS following stem cell transplant in a nested case control study. In 170 subjects matched to non-ARDS control, stem cell transplant subjects were more likely to be on steroids, have lower platelet counts, and higher creatinine. In the first day of hospitalization, stem cell subje subjects were more likely to receive a blood transfusion, opioids, and fluid resuscitation. Sepsis was the most common predisposing factor for ARDS. The authors conclude that these factors may help provide insights into the mechanisms of ARDS following stem cell transplant. Willis and colleagues conducted a survey regarding home cleaning of positive airway pressure devices used in the pediatric sleep clinic. In a sample of nearly 100 respondents, most caregivers reported cleaning of circuits, humidifiers, and masks with soap and water. There was no relationship between the time of use and what the cleaning practices were. They concluded that care and cleaning practices varied from instructions given in the clinic, but that weekly cleaning was commonly reported. This is a pragmatic trial looking at how patients manage their equipment in the home, and I think this is the kind of work we need to continue to do and figure out ways to get patients to do what we ask them to do, no different than medication compliance, just perhaps as important. Batista et al. compared continuous oximetry with six-minute walk tests to a single measurement at the end of the test. They studied a large sample of COPD subjects during the six-minute walk test using continuous pulse oximetry monitoring and defined desaturation as a fall in SpO2 of greater than 4%. Desaturation was observed in 71% of subjects during the six-minute walk test and was lower than the end test SpO2. Only 19% of subjects exhibited a lower SpO2 at six-minute walk test completion. The authors concluded that desaturation missed by end exercise SpO2, but observed during the six-minute walk test, were independently associated with all-cause mortality in hospitalizations and subjects with COPD. Dorado and others provide a short report regarding ventilator liberation in COVID-19 subjects. This epidemiologic study including included finding a reintubation rate of almost 30%. This was a really critically ill group of subjects and there were not a lot of patients who actually progressed to the ventilator liberation stage. Abragadal contributed a short report suggesting early variation of the ROX index was a good predictor of HFNC failure. A ROX change of less than 1.8 at 12 hours was associated with the need for escalation of respiratory support. And again, this we have a theme of lots of treatments of, of COVID-19 with non-invasive respiratory support in this issue, and it's clear that one of the most important aspects is to determine when the therapy is failing and when to escalate care. Baker and Hoon provide an invited review on national and glo global asthma management guidance documents. Branson and Rodriguez contribute the final New Horizons paper on the COVID-19 Lessons Learned group and provides an accounting and analysis of the response to the anticipated ventilator sh shortage in the U.S. Um, this is kind of a personal paper for me, having experienced a lot of discussion over time with multiple, multiple media outlets about this issue, and the focus needs to remain that it's not the device that's important, it's the critical care aspect and the critical care service that's required for these patients. A ventilator alone does not imply critical care. Finally, Bardwa and others provide a figure-intensive review of radiographic abnormalities that demonstrate how anatomic or physiologic conditions drive radiographic appearance. 
We appreciate you subscribing to the Restory Care podcast, and we look forward to a very productive 2023. Thank you. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.